Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Arcadio Huang. We recently talked about the deep learning curve that belongs to any foreign learner of the Chinese language due to the multitude of ancient expressions and allusions. That reminded me of a story I read long ago in my former professor Jonathan Spence's book, The Chinese Roundabout, which underscores how much even more difficult it used to be to learn Chinese, how steep the gulf between languages and cultures. So I thought I'd revisit that story today. European understanding of the Chinese language up until the 18th century was not accurate. Spence describes the state of European understanding of Chinese in the early modern age as follows. The Englishman John Webb devoted much of his scholarly life to proving that Chinese was the world's first language and hence the mother of all others. The Dutchman Isaac Vossius praised the arts and sciences of China above all others and indicated that he would rather have been born in China than in our part of the world. The Frenchman Philippe Masson proved that Chinese was an old Hebrew dialect, knowledge of which could solve many a naughty Old Testament linguistic problem. Thus, the nature of the manna that God fed to the children of Israel in the desert was easily understood when one realized the word was simply a variant of mantou, the common steamed dumplings of China. For the Swedish scholar Olaus Rudbeck, Chinese was the closest parallel to the language of the Goths. Following these men, Andreas Müller of Pomerania claimed to have designed a clavis sinica, or key to Chinese, that would teach anyone to read the language in a matter of days. Alas, Müller ended up burning his papers so that no one ever got to see what this key was. I think we're safe to assume, however, that it didn't work. Following Müller, Theophilus Siegfried Bayer of Königsberg, then in East Prussia and now Kaliningrad in Russia, did his best to compile the totality of European knowledge of Chinese. Bayer's book, The Museum Sinicum, published in 1730 after 17 years of work, was not a success. Around that same time, though, apparently unbeknownst to Bayer, actually useful study into Chinese was being conducted in Paris. It was largely one man who made the study possible. Arcadio Huang was born Huang Jialu in the town now called Putian in the southern coastal province of Fujian in 1679 during the reign of Emperor Kangxi. His father had converted to Catholicism 
and been baptized as Paul. Young Arcadio followed his parents into Catholicism and began to associate with French missionaries in China from a young age. In early 1702, Huang accompanied a French mentor onto a British ship headed for Europe. They meant to go to the continent, but France and England happened to be at war at the time, the War of Spanish Succession, which made the onward passage from England to France difficult. Nonetheless, they made it to Paris by the end of 1702. Arcadio Huang was meant to go to Rome and eventually to take holy orders. But instead, he returned to Paris after some time in Rome, having decided against a life in the clergy. Settling in Paris in 1704-1705, Arcadio did his best to blend into French society, even marrying a French woman named Marie-Claude Renier in 1713. At the same time, he made the acquaintance of the Abbé Jean-Paul Bignon, librarian to King Louis XIV. Let's recall here, as previously discussed on this podcast, that Louis XIV took a particular interest in all things Chinese, after being told that his only equal in this world was Emperor Kangxi himself. The king's library had by this time acquired a number of volumes in Chinese, which Binyang couldn't begin to read. So he hired Huang to be his assistant. Then Binyang put him together with a young scholar named Nicolas Freret tasking the two of them with producing a French-Chinese dictionary. Highlighting the cultural divide, even going the other way, and by the way, this raises an interesting question of how Arcadio could operate in French society, Ferret said of his colleague, he had no idea at all of European sciences and methods. Even his way of speaking French was almost unintelligible, since he found nothing in his native language at all similar to the European languages of which he had acquired a smattering. Thus, the French grammars that he had been advised to take as his models were incomprehensible to him, since he could find no way to attach distinct ideas to the abstract grammatical terms with which these books were filled. Ferret took to painstakingly explaining French grammar to Arcadio. Only after he acquired better understanding of European linguistic concepts was Arcadio in turn able to begin to explain Chinese to his colleague. Contrary to prevailing opinion in France at the time, Arcadio explained to Fered, Chinese was not similar to ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, even though they both appeared to be ideographic. Instead, the tens of thousands of apparently independent Chinese characters that utterly boggled the European mind 
could all be broken down into 214 components known as radicals. This was the eureka moment for French sinologists. A Chinese native had finally provided them with the key to understanding this entirely alien tongue, structured in a way unlike any other language they had previously known. Meanwhile, Arcadio made the acquaintance of a young lawyer by the name of Charles Louis de Sacondat. Later in life, and in history books, the young lawyer would come to be better known as Montesquieu, the great Enlightenment philosopher who tremendously influenced, among many others, the founding fathers of the United States. Montesquieu had sought out Arcadio out of curiosity about China, visiting him multiple times and taking notes on their conversations. When Montesquieu wrote his book Persian Letters, which used the device of creating Asian characters to question European values and assumptions from an outsider's perspective, he had Arcadio in mind as his model. And when Montesquieu wrote his magnum opus, The Spirit of the Laws, he relied for his knowledge of Chinese institutions on his conversations with Arcadio. In fact, Montesquieu seemed to have essentially interviewed Arcadio during these conversations, probing him systematically on subject after subject. On religion, what did the Chinese believe? Arcadio explained that Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism coexisted side by side. What did each of these belief systems preach? Arcadio explained one by one the ideas of each religion. What kind of laws governed China? Arcadio explained some of the deliciously brutal punishments that were possible under the Chinese penal code. What kind of clothes did the Chinese wear? How were they with their families? What were funerary rites like? Was there prose fiction in Chinese literature? What was the deal with the civil service exams? What status did Chinese women possess? Arcadio answered these questions in turn. Notably, after all these conversations, and despite the confidence with which Montesquieu commented on China in The Spirit of the Laws, in his notes, Montesquieu wrote, I believe that the Chinese will absolutely never be understood by us. These conversations with Montesquieu took place in 1713, while Arcadio and Freret continued to work on their dictionary. They couldn't have known then that their time was going to be limited. Their incredibly productive partnership ended suddenly in December 1714, when Freret was arrested and imprisoned in the Bastille for allegedly taking the wrong side in the religious conflicts of the time. 
Abbe Bignon sent another young man, Etienne Formont, to take Freud's place. But Arcadio never formed a good relationship with Formon. Although Ferret was released a few months later, he did not return to his previous post as Arcadio's collaborator. In 1715, Marie-Claude gave birth to a daughter, also christened Marie-Claude. A neighbor reported that the baby girl looked quite Chinese. Sadly, the mother died within days of the delivery. Arcadio took the death quite hard, and his own health was already suffering. On October 1st, 1716, Arcadio Huang died, leaving his grand Chinese-French dictionary unfinished. Just a few months after that, his daughter also died. And now that the Chinese man was dead, Etienne Formon proceeded to take credit for all of his work while criticizing him bitterly. Thus ended the story of Arcadio Huang, in tragedy, I suppose. Jonathan Spence ends his essay on Huang on this elegiac note. Huang had hoped passionately that at least Marie-Claude would live on to embody his dream of emerging of China and France that would enable each to understand the other better. But she too died only a few months after her father. The flicker of light for this particular dream of a new era between China and the West was out. Professor Spence, it seems to me, was perhaps a bit more negative here than was necessary. Sure, Arcadio Huang's life ended substantially in tribulations and disappointment. But he had done so much to allow Westerners a glimpse into the Chinese world. He had made it possible, substantially for the first time, for European students to study the Chinese language in a systematic and correct fashion, instead of chasing fantastical theories like the notion that Chinese might be a dialect of Hebrew. He had, I think, substantially given lie to Montesquieu's comment that the Chinese will absolutely never be understood by us. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.